Yeah, waking up in the hospital was the most, the saddest thing ever um, for me to realize I had committed this horrific crime. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview today with Wayne Boatwright. Uh, Wayne is an attorney who had, uh, you know, basically had an, a, an alcohol problem. He ended up uh, getting a DUI and went to prison and has a, a very interesting story, a different type of story than I'm, I'm typically uh, used to, or different type of story that I'm typically used to kind of delving into. And uh, let's check it out. So tell me about uh, where where you were sure. you know yeah where you were born where you were raised like sure sure matt you know everybody's got their own story right and uh there's no doubt i have one i'm i look at myself as kind of like the american dream story um i was raised by a single mother uh in california uh we lived up and down the state as far north as mendocino as far south as long beach and everywhere in between as we moved around a lot i've lived in a trailer park Right. I've lived above a gas station in an apartment raised on government assistance. But but I, I had a real focus and and a natural intelligence that allowed me to, you know, go to college and ultimately go to Cornell Law School and become an Ivy League attorney. So uh, so I've had quite an adventure in life. And I, you know, I look at my prison journey um, as as uh, another facet of that adventure. I, I think the biggest surprise to me though, and I've been home three years now since prison, is that I didn't realize my, um, the six years, three months I spent in prison would turn into a life sentence. And uh, I think I found in a lot of ways that it has, uh, even though I've been back three years. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, for example, uh, I've been on three years, I've worked 26 different jobs in the three years I've been back. Um, from, Whoa. <laughs> that's right. House sitting, cat sitting, uh, you know, uh, a, a host at a restaurant. Right now, I'm working at a catering company. Um, now, don't get me wrong; it's a nice catering company. I, I went. Uh, I worked in an event where Bill Gates came, right, and the Goo Goo Dolls were playing. I mean, it's and all that, and I dress up nice, but you know, I'm a glorified butler. Uh, right. I got an Ivy Law School degree, and I'm a glorified butler because that's the best job I can find uh, to do that. And I do a bunch of stuff in the techie slash uh, nonprofit space. So I'm a web manager and a web developer for a number of different uh, websites as well. So it's not all manual labor, but but none of it um, is anywhere near the life that I led before uh, I went to prison. Okay. Well, let's. So I mean, when you right when you you grew up and eventually, I mean, obviously you, you know, you go to college and everything. I'm just wondering, like, were you a good student in high school? Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting how life works, right? I, um, uh, I, I think, and you can resonate with this. Uh, money was a big issue to me. Um, mm -hmm. when you grow up in scarcity, um, uh, as I did, it becomes very important to be able to take care of yourself. Right. In the best way you could think of doing it. Um, so I, I was a middling B student in, in high school, uh, mainly because I was working all the time. As soon as I turned 16, I had a, a regular job working 20, 30 hours a week at a 7-Eleven. You know, um, my last year in high school, I went to the school about two periods a day and worked the rest of the day. I had a work study, it was called. It allowed me to get out and work and earn money. And that was important to me. Um, 
but I was working at a machine shop, you know, uh, doing using a drill press and a lathe and stuff like that. Um, I think what got me motivated to actually go back to school and get a, a college degree, and I started at LA Valley College, right, the, the basic level, took all the remedial courses again, and and then uh, realized it wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to go, so I went to Cal State Northridge, and that didn't help me as much as I wanted, as my dreams were. So I ended up getting my degree at, at a place called BYU in Utah um, and got a degree in economics and a minor in international relations in Spanish. And was a really good student by then. I was getting straight A's, right? And that that's what led me to go to, uh, to apply to law school and, and be able to, um, you know, to get a number of good offers and selected Cornell, um, which was an amazing experience for me. I mean, I was a West Coast kid. I'm, I'm a fourth generation Californian, Matt. I mean, my mother and grandmother were both born in San Francisco. Uh, my family's been here a long time. So I tr trust me, going to a, an East Coast town in upstate New York was a real cultural change for me. But, but I've had a number of those. You know, I lived in Argentina for two years. I lived in Korea for six years. Um, as an attorney, I had a global position at a publicly traded company called Accenture uh, for a couple of years. And... And in the Bay Area, I've done a lot of work with uh, startups, mainly. you know, a lot of the tech startups that you think about uh, prior uh, to my crime. Um, and I think that suited me well for prison life, believe it or not. I looked at prison as going to a new country. <laughs> it's like, I don't know anything. I don't know how people think. I don't know how they work. But I'm going to be observant and be open to change and figure out how I can survive in um, what I think is the... Uh, you know, I went to San Quentin, which is a, quite a famous prison here in California. Uh, we have our death row for California in San Quentin. Um, it's a lot of people who are called lifers, so they've got serious amount of crime behind them, and that's why they're at San Quentin. Um, so I felt like I was, uh, you know, back in the the savanna in Africa, you know, where where everything you're either the, you're both hunting and you're the hunted by just about everything in the world. And so that was a very different world for me. I grew up in a nonviolent, you know, grew up. I lived the upper middle class life. Right. Owned a house, had a good job, had a wife, had kids. And so prison was a, a whole different world to me. I didn't know anybody who'd ever gone to prison before. I well, well, let's let's go back to you. You started, you, you graduated college. Oh, um, yeah. So, so for me, I wanted to see the world was my real philosophy. It's always been, I've always been a, an adventuresome sort. Like I said, I went to Argentina for a couple of years. I did that before college uh, because I was curious about the world. Um, and, you know, when you grow up in uh, the way I did, you know, the first time I got on a plane was when I was going to Argentina. I was 19 years old. Yeah, I'd never been on an airplane before. Um, so I, I really was having a new experience, but that meant a lot to me. Um, I... Philosophically, um, so I was a business lawyer, not a, most people see lawyers on TV and they're criminal lawyers or litigators. That's not my thing. Yeah, you know? it's super sexy. I, Being a lawyer exactly. looks like it's very sexy and the truth is it's not. No, no and, and that wasn't what interested me. I wanted to, um, I, I think a philosophy that stuck with me is I wanted to make the world a better place. Um, and I felt that being a corporate lawyer, helping people do business, uh, around the world was a way to do that. And um, that's what got me interested in law school in the first place. And I got to tell you, again, when you come from a, 
humble beginnings, as we like to say, you do anything you can to scratch by. When, when I was in uh, law school, for example, I was a house father at a sorority. So Cornell's got a big Greek system. So, so I was an older male. I was married at the time. And so I was, me and my wife were uh, working as the live-in house parents for 40 girls, right, who are, who are there in, at college. Uh, but that's the way you pay the bills, and I, I wanted to do that because I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to learn how to gain a profession. I, I didn't know that from my, I didn't know that from my family experience. This is theory in practice, right? But people who are successful tend to have a profession. Therefore, I'm going to get a profession. Was yeah. how I got there. It wasn't like my family had that, and I learned from them. Um, oh yeah, I've done uh, having 26 jobs right now is nothing to me. I've done so many different things in my career, uh, uh, both as a lawyer and before becoming a lawyer, that it's, it's easy for me to find work. But that's the kind of philosophy I come from. You know, my family actually came to America in the 1600s. They were um, what are called French Huguenots, which were French Protestants that were evicted from Catholic France. And so they came over to America. And so we got kind of that old wasp ethic, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethic. Work hard. Uh, don't be proud. Don't promote yourself, but, you know, be a good person, be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. um, was always been part of my value system and something that was important to me. And that includes having a, you know, being able to take care of yourself. So I've always been able to take care of myself. I mean, like I said, I was working from 16 on. Um, uh, but let's just say that when I was a lawyer, I was better able to take care of myself and my family <laughs> than I can now. Right. So, um, all right. So you, you got married where you were still in college when you got married? Oh my gosh. I, um, you know, I was naive, um, as a young man, I got married at 21. Uh, I married an older woman. Um, what, what's an older woman? She was only 24. Oh yeah. Oh. But, but she'd been working for a long time. She was my manager at the bank I worked at. So I was working as a teller at the time. And, um, I was in love, you know, as 21 year olds are. And, yeah, I got married at 21 and it was still um, going to college and, and starting that, that world all over again and trying to figure out where to go. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I was, I was uh, you know, you hustled in a different way than I did, but trust me, I was hustling in my own way uh, to make it through life and I, and I was doing pretty well. You know, when I was, uh, I mentioned, you know, coming from a simple family, my first car was a 1972 Ford LTD. You know, an eight-cylinder with a bunk bench, uh, bench seat, because you wanted to go to drive-ins back then. That's how old I am. I mean, I'm 60. People don't get this stuff. I used to go to drive-ins, you know, and you wanted a girl to be able to sit next to you. You don't want bucket seats. You want a bench seat so that can happen. Um, yeah, I, I had a, I had a, a stable life by a single mother, but, but a, a humble one, and that prepared me for moving on, and that included getting married, um, which I thought was the right thing to do at the time um, well all right so you you graduate college you went on to law school how did you go right into law school or yeah yeah i went straight into law school you know i, I figured that's what i wanted to do um and uh, law school was a great experience um biggest difference for me as a west coaster who went to public high school i went to la unified public high school I mean, I had English teachers who were too lazy to teach. They'd ask us to play board games like Monopoly during the class when I went to public high school. You know, 
you get back east and you go to a, a place like Cornell, you got a lot of these kids who went to private boarding school and small liberal arts colleges. They are so much more, they were so much more prepared for the college experience. How to articulate an argument, how to how to express themselves clearly in written form and oral form than I was. I had a lot of catching up to do when I got to um, when I got to law school. I, I think that was the first time I realized I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. Right. And I I think you can appreciate that, right? <laughs> a lot of people you can just kind of run rings around, and that's when I learned that no, no, you can't do that here. So law school was a real eye opener for me. Uh, like the first time I ever got a C in college, right? Uh, in college, I was high school. I was an average student, but by the time I got to college, I was studying hard. Um, and uh, you know, law school was a different experience. Yeah, I did much better in college than I did, and I was I was pretty much straight A's in college as opposed to uh, high school, which I just skated by with C's and B's. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh. Well, it didn't matter, right? Yeah, it was high school. Was like, yeah. I didn't think I was going to go to college. So, um, but once you, so once you got out of college, you went to, you went to law school, like when you graduated law school, like how did you go about finding a job and. Oh yeah. So law school's um, it's a very unique environment when you're going to, um, and I need law school to be honest. Right. So you're, everybody's looking to hire you when you come out of there. So I had originally planned on going to the DC because I liked a lot of the international stuff. In fact, my focus in law uh, had a lot to do with international relations, things like that. So that was my plan. I, I ultimately went to uh, uh, LA to work uh, because I, my family was having a lot of problems and I needed to go back uh, to help them. Um, I think that's a constant theme in my life. Of, of, uh, I got kind of like survivor syndrome after I got out of my family environment, but, but I kept having to go back. Uh, to that environment, uh, mainly to help uh, my family who were getting into different troubles. So, hey, I was working in LA and, you know, I had that LA law lifestyle, you know, I had a new car, I had a good life, um, but, but it wasn't satisfying. I wanted the international stuff. I think the most interesting thing for me was two years into my law career, I decided to pack up with my wife and move to Seoul, Korea. Um, you know, Korea only had 5,000 attorneys in the whole country and they've got like you know, 45 million people. So there's not a lot of lawyers out there, but I felt like it would be a good, a good opportunity for me to do what I really wanted to do, which is to, to work in the world and be part of this international community and world. So yeah, two years after being a lawyer, I packed up and moved to Korea, never been to Asia, you know, I hadn't done anything like that. I said, what the hell? I want to, I want to see what this is like. Brought my wife along. Um, did, did you work well. for a company? Were you transferred with a company or did you just go? Oh, no, I got a job from uh, the, the dominant law firm in Korea. These, okay. these guys make a billion dollars a year in legal fees right now. I mean, it's a big company now. But, um, yeah, I went over there as what's called a foreign legal consultant, and I loved it. And I, I loved trying to cross those, um, those boundaries and those barriers of culture, of education, of nation, of ethnicity. Um, that you get to do. I mean, I found that same thing when I was in Argentina, of uh, just how different um, that country is to America. Uh, Korea was also very different um, than the American standard. And so I got a chance to go there and experience that, as well as work with all these international companies. I mean, I met uh, George Soros when I was in 
Korea. I, I met uh, Michael Bloomberg when I was in Korea because our companies were coming into that market. And I was a foreign legal consultant that uh, worked with their companies uh, as they were entering that market. It was amazing. Dude, I partied with Stevie Wonder and his crew after a concert one night because I was a white guy in Korea. They didn't know anybody, so they asked me to come sit with them. And, and you know, we got to have a, a really good time. Um, I even, shoot, I was in a, a cast beer commercial in Korea. This is one of their top beers, kind of like their, their Coors, you know, where they, they brought you to do stuff. So, yeah, you get to do a lot of crazy stuff when you're overseas as an expat, and I loved it. Um, uh-huh. It was a good life. So your but your wife is there. Did were, did you have kids by that point or? Um, this will sound crazy, but fortunately we didn't. Um, she had um, she had endometriosis, so she couldn't have children. We found out as we were going through a number of studies. You know, it's it's funny. Um, uh, when you work um, at a hard job in Korea, you work six days a week in a suit. You work Saturdays. Right, you work at night, late. Um, I was working really hard uh, when I was in Korea. My wife uh, couldn't really find a job, so she was working as a, an aerobics instructor in Korea. And um, I think I worked too hard for her, so she uh, she fell in love with somebody else, and, and we ended up getting a divorce when I was in Korea. Now, my second wife, so I just my second wife says I didn't work hard enough, so I figured I haven't gotten the balance yet <laughs> between how much you work and how much you don't. Right. But but yeah, you know, um, Korea was hard for her because she had a she didn't have a big community to be part of like I did. You know, I had work. I had all the other stuff that I was doing and she was in a more isolated experience there than I was. But hey, I mean, that was her choice. And, uh, and I uh, I'm lucky in a way because I ended up remarrying and now I've got two kids. Uh, one just started college. In fact, he's going to my alma mater. He's uh, shoot. He started school. Today, today is his first day as an undergrad at uh, Cornell University. So, trust me, uh, I'm I'm a lucky man. Um, I'm a lucky man with my kids, and and that divorce uh, wasn't the end of me. But you know, I found that um, I had to give up a lot. Uh, um, divorce, both my divorces and then my crime are probably the those three events where you. Um, you find you you lose a part of yourself. Uh, with my first divorce, I lost my faith and I lost my religion, for example. Um, my second divorce came uh, four months into my prison sentence. And so I lost my family, I lost my social network, I lost my profession with that. Um, and by committing my crime, as, you know, you mentioned I had a DUI, but it's, it's a lot worse than that, right? I killed someone right. as a drunk driver. I took a life. Um, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I hate to interrupt, but I mean, did you have an alcohol problem? Was it was this this was an alcohol problem and not an isolated event where you had a few too many drinks? This was something that was that you had been struggling with. Am, am I right? No, yes. yes, no, 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 yes, yes, but not consciously. Right. I'm on the functional alcohol. Right. Right. Um, like I drink too much at parties. Or I took a full bottle of wine at dinner, um, not realizing that it made me vulnerable to that day, right? Or to that event that that comes with that. Um, yeah, alcohol was something I never really got into. I first started drinking at 33. Um, so it wasn't like it was something I, I had grown up with. 
in my family or knew a lot about. Uh, but I got steadily worse. Um, to be honest, uh, as a, I call myself, so I was a lawyer, but a lot of ways I was a businessman. So I, um, one of the big things I did after I was, uh, on, after I was on my own as an independent lawyer was I did a, a big project of, of a 723 unit condominium development in Las Vegas. Um, and I brokered this deal and I was asked to become the general counsel of their team as we built this big Vegas, big uh, project in Vegas. Trust me, all those things you hear about Vegas pales compared to what really happens when you're going there one, every week uh, and you become a local. Um, yeah, uh, the Baca Red Bull became my, my uh, drink of choice. Um, and, uh, you know, a bump every once in a while became the other way that you kept things in balance in Vegas. And so that became a habit that, that uh, made me vulnerable to my crime, right? Didn't destroy my life before my crime. I was still married. I had kids. I was working, having money. But yeah, alcohol became a worse and worse problem for me as, uh, as time went on. But it wasn't a conscious recognition that it was really bad. I just thought that that, you know, I'm still partying. So what? I'm having fun like everybody else. So there was never anybody, nobody ever tried to cartel your drinking. There was no, no rehab stints. No. Yeah, none of that. No, none of that. You know, and I was, again, I told you I was an old school wasp, you know, you, you carry your own water. Right. You don't look for help. Right. Even if you know you have a problem at some level, you, you know, you, it's your job to deal with it. Not, not anybody else's. Oh, what happened to me was um, where I fell off the cliff wasn't just my crime. It was like a six month process because my mom had fallen and broken her hip. She was still living in LA with my special needs brother. And um, I had to make multiple trips down there. So over a four month period, I was driving from San Francisco to LA to get her and my brother out of there to get her hospice stabilized so that she would, you know, hopefully get better. Um, but also to get her and my brother into uh, an assisted living facility. And I had to do that on my own. So I was driving down there a lot. And I thought, I thought alcohol was a good way to help um, self-medicate through that right. process, right? as I was going down there again and again to deal with that. In fact, um, the, the night of my crime was the day that I had checked them in uh, to a, an assistant living facility. Um, and I, I was cleaning out their apartment that day after they had, they had left so they'd have their, their precious things that they wanted uh, to keep. And I thought drinking Red Bull vodka was a good idea. And when I say drinking, I'm talking like a bottle of vodka, right? We're not talking... By then I was drinking heavily. Um, and then after I cleaned out their place, I thought it was a smart idea to try to drive home drunk. Kept drinking when I was driving, to be honest. Um, and had an accident on the, my accident happened on the five freeway and my crime happened on the five freeway. I had a head on collision with another car and killed someone. Um, uh, about two hours into my drive back to, uh, back to San Francisco. So yeah, alcohol was a, uh, a problem, right? But but not one I fully appreciated. And, and what really made it worse was trying to deal with these family issues on my own and not, right. really, not realizing I needed help uh, to deal with those issues. So did you, I mean, did you pass out? Did you just wake up in the hospital and they told you? Yeah, yeah I, woke up, 
you know, I, I fractured my pelvis, broke my neck, I shattered my foot. I've got a plate and eight screws in my foot. Yeah, I was pretty heavily injured as well. You know, they medevac us to a hospital. Uh, but I killed someone. I Yeah, I, I was hurt. Um, no, you know, I, I again, the old wasp thing, I don't think I had cried since I was, you know, 18 years old. But when I found out I had killed someone, I was devastated. You know, I, I'd taken a life, and that's, there's no coming back from that you know, in a lot of ways. Well, I have a question. Like, how did you, I mean, okay, you wake up in the hospital, and yeah. does someone, does an officer tell you? Yeah. Uh, you know, are you, are you wake up and you're handcuffed to the bed, or do they just say, hey, you know, like, were you arrested immediately? Uh, they met back to the hospital. I met the doctors at the, or excuse me, I met some highway patrolmen at the hospital uh, more than 24 hours after my accident. I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I had a concussion. I was knocked unconscious for quite a while. Um, no, you know, no, they didn't handcuff me to the bed, but I was in the hospital for over 90 days. I had a fractured pelvis. I wasn't going anywhere. You know, right. I, I was, you know, I, my foot was had to be reconstructed. I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere. So no, they didn't handcuff me to the bed. Um, uh, and you're on a lot of morphine, so that kind of helps you uh, uh, get a balance as you go through that process. Now, this was down in Fresno too. I mean, I'm from San Francisco. It's the middle of nowhere. I was in a place called Kings County um, uh, when I woke up in the hospital. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You're, I've done a bunch of um, talks and, and interviews and AA meetings, stuff like that. You're the first guy to really ask me about my whole life. Most people have just started with, you know, my crime. So I appreciate that, man. That, yeah. That's a, that means something to me. Um, yeah, waking up in the hospital was the most the saddest thing ever um, for me to realize I had committed this horrific crime and uh, and terminated somebody else's future and destroyed uh, ultimately two families, right? Not just the victim's family, but my family as well. Um, I was going to ask you, did your did your wife come down? Did your you know, how did that play out? Like, uh, I mean, you were still married. Yeah. At, this, at this point, you have you have uh, what two children? Two kids. Two kids. Two kids. Yeah. You're in the hospital. You wake up. Do they tell you right away? This is listen. The uh, the other the other person died, or he didn't make it, or he's still in surgery. Um, or is oh it yeah, they tell me all the details. Uh, she was alive when they were medevacing her, and she uh, she died in the hospital. Um, okay. Uh, Are you? Yeah, concerned? my. At that, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, it's just that, you know, like at that time I, I get, you know, I understand, you know, you took a life and that's, you know, and, and absolutely I, I get it. Like, that's like, you know, what have I done? Oh my, you know, I'm, a, a, you're upset, but you, there's still self-preservation. I mean, you have to start thinking like, am I going to be charged? I mean, look, this is horrible, but I still have two kids and a wife, like, and it's horrible. And, and I know something has to be done, but I need to know what that's going to be. Like, I'm not ready to be, you know, as horrible as you may have felt, there's still survival instinct and mitigating, you know, what happened because I do have two children. 
that I have to take care of it. And look, you, you know, you could say, like, I know I, I would say, hey, look, what I did is horrible. I, I, I really made a mistake. I'm a, a horrible person for what happened. I feel horrible about it, but I still have a responsibility. So at, at what point did you start, start thinking to yourself, like, what's going to happen to me? Like, am I going to be charged? You know, you know, does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. I, um, I knew I was going to be charged. I mean, that okay. was a crime. That, that, that doesn't be an issue. I didn't know what the penalty would be right. Right, for that. Um, no, I'd never had a drunk driving, uh, you know, ticket or arrest or conviction. It was a first offense, right? So, that, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how they'd treat me. I, did, um, I didn't expect what I got. I, I ended up getting what's called the midterm uh, in the end of that process. So I got seven years, eight months for my crime. Um, and I, I was surprised by that. I'll be honest with you. Um, you surprised that it, you felt it was uh, harsh or. Yeah. I, I thought if I'm not the low term, I don't know who is to be honest. Yeah. yeah here's what bothers uh, me about the, the seven years is like, to me, if you had, you'd had a DUI, you had, you knew you had an issue. You'd been to AA. You'd been struggling for years to to get your addiction, your alcoholism under control. Like then, it's like, okay, you knew you shouldn't be driving, but you hadn't had any real close calls, or you know, ah, I drink a little bit, but it, it's not a major issue. It's not like people are showing up saying, oh, he's he knows he has a major major problem. You just felt like you just I was, I, I had a shitty day, and I, the way I dealt with it was I, I just drank a little bit and I didn't think I was too intoxicated and I clearly was. But so to me, that is the low end. The guy that's been arrested, done, had several DUIs, knows he's got a problem. Like that's the guy in the mid to high end. Well, and, and now you're talking something about the criminal justice system that I think a lot of um, a lot of normal people don't understand. You know, their idea of the criminal justice system is watching it on TV, Right. CIS or whatever, convicted right. guy is a bad guy. Um, the system is set up uh, to maximize your time in prison, not right. to attain justice in a lot of ways. And I'm lucky. I know guys who've been in prison 40 years. Don't, don't you know, I'm not complaining about right. getting a sentence of seven years, eight months, but it's just, um, I was told that the only people who got the low sentence in the county that I committed my crime in were police officers. So a police officer would get the low end, but anybody else got the mid or the high end. That was just the way it was. Um, uh, but is is that fair? No, but you know, probably not to most people. But that's the way the system works in that county. If I committed my crime in San Francisco, it might have been a different thing. Remember, I'm some rich hotshot lawyer driving through town from San Francisco who did this. Right. I'm not. I'm not a local. Yeah. Um, uh, who, who got there and did it. So, so, you know, my process was probably different than yours. You know, I know that you went through a plea bargain process and you, you ultimately accepted a plea bargain. I think a lot of people don't know that uh, almost all criminal cases are settled by plea bargain. Right. Uh, like 95%. Yeah. For example, uh, yeah. don't go to trial. Don't go to court. So you don't go before a jury. I didn't go before a jury. I didn't want to. I, I was happy to to work out an arrangement and save uh, the state the expense and process of going to court. Um, so I, you know, I, being a lawyer, I was smart enough to hire 
two lawyers, one to deal with the civil side and one to deal with the criminal side. Um, and, uh, you know, was given uh, bond, was out on bond, right? So I actually, the time between I committed my crime and the time I went to prison was over a year, about a year, three months. I was in the hospital for three months and then I was in a wheelchair for six months and then a walker and, you know, but I was trying to drag out that process so I was healthy enough to go to prison. I didn't right. want to go to prison in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so, I, so I took that process out and was able to do that um, uh, from home, right? After right. my 90 days. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen the the uh, level of care that you get in prison as far as medical is concerned. Like you, you do not want to get sick in prison. No. I mean, you these guys, not. yeah. Uh, well, that I've was seen so many guys medical. die. I've seen so many guys die in prison. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and it's not just, yeah, there's a lot of, of death um, from from cancer or illness. There's some death from violence. Shoot, my prison in San Quentin, there were 29 guys who died from COVID, for heaven's sake. The prison only has 3,500 people. Right. right. You know, so, so, yeah, I didn't want to have to deal with that. Um, uh, and I was able to, to, to work through that process long enough to, um, get healthy enough to go to prison where it wasn't obvious. You know, another thing about prison, I, I, I said it was like the Savannah. Um, you don't want to be an injured person going to prison because that just makes you a, a target. You're just a victim to go after. And I don't care if you're injured emotionally or because you have a drug addiction or because you've got a physical problem. Any of those uh, means that they'll try to cull you out of the herd and take you down uh, right. in one way or another. And unfortunately, I know a lot of guys who couldn't get over their addiction and they just stayed addicted to prison, right? Um, it's easy to get what you need in there, believe it or not. But that's an example of what I mean. It's not just they're going to kill you. They're going to take advantage of you. I want to make sure I could minimize that risk. So you're, you were at home for six um what nine months yeah, over a year yeah okay so what um so i mean how did your how'd your wife and and kids like how did they what were they going through i mean kids are pretty resilient you know they may or may not really know what's understand what's happening and but you know your wife clearly knows what's happening she knows there's going to be some issues oh yeah um well you know it's interesting the kids were really young at the time um uh five and, and seven for example so they knew daddy was injured and so i just had to make sure that they knew i would be okay that that i was recovering um we did sit down with them about the crime as i once i knew that the sentencing would be a significant time and i'd be going away to explain to them you know that that it wasn't just an accident that happened that I committed a crime. And, and then when you commit a crime, society judges you. And that judgment usually includes taking you away from society, away from family and putting you in prison. They didn't know what those terms really meant. Right. We had the discussion. And that was that was important to me, to be a father that, that helped kids understand that as a citizen, you have a responsibility to society. It's not just society protects you with your rights. You have responsibility and i had violated those and so i had a price to pay for it um, uh, 
that was the way I explained it to them. You know, wife, she had a hard time with it. Um, I had, I had not just committed a crime and taken a life. I had shamed her by being a criminal. Um, and, uh, that was hard for her to take. You know, it, you know, you asked how I felt when I found out I committed a crime and I, and I said, I broke down and I was crying and stuff. Um, I'll be honest with you. When my wife came to visit me in the visiting room four months into my prison sentence and told me we were going to get a divorce, that hit me harder than taking a life um, uh, in a lot of ways because I didn't see it coming. Um, yeah. I thought we were going to get through the, the prison time and have that kind of safe, solid marriage, but, but we didn't, and uh, I didn't realize it. Um, and I, uh, I almost got myself shot that day because I was... Uh, you know, you have to have the ducket, it's called, to move around in prison. Um, and I was in an area that I wasn't allowed to be in because I was just despondent, uh, crying and, and despondent. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was lucky that they were more understanding than I appreciated uh, them being at the time um, uh, when I was uh, out of bounds as it were, yeah. that day. Yeah, that, took, that was hard for me. Um, I smile about it now because I kind of take the philosophy like the ancient Greek um, uh, plays that they would do. You know, life is equal parts tragedy and comedy. Um, and what you don't realize is that a tragedy, if you live long enough, becomes a comedy later on. Right. You can laugh at it or you can smile about it. Um, how silly you were or how ridiculous the things were you did. At oh, the yeah. Time. I, I, um, I do it all the time. <laughs> right. You got to. Yeah. Oh, my God. How did I do that? You yeah. know, well, well like um, I, I, I even when I tell my story, I, I constantly kind of have these moments where I think, what the fuck were you thinking? Like you had so many opportunities, like I'm getting to these opportunities where you I could have done the right thing. Like there were so many, many better choices. You made that one. Like, what were you, the arrogance? And I, I always relate it to, you know, in my case, I always relate it to um, uh, just a pride. Like, my pride has gotten me in every major screw up I've ever made has been specifically related to my pride. So, yeah. but I don't know, you know, if yours, you know, what, what, what your you know, catalyst, your, what your issues, you know, are, but mine has always been just, just arrogance, pride, just, you know, I don't know, but that's the heart of it. That is the heart of it. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you think you're God's gift to the world uh, <laughs> in some ways, right? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I went through that, that same process. Um, but, you know, I, so when I say I lost my family with my crime, uh, I didn't lose it at the crime. I lost it four months later. Right. Uh, uh, when I was uh, getting divorced. But, you know, I, I'm also an honorable man. You know, my, my divorce, um, you know, we... So I was successful. And, and I know you know what it's like to have the court impose financial obligations on you uh, because of your crimes. Uh, in my case, I had a small criminal penalty and a big civil suit that was going on. I settled with my victim's family. Um, the settlement was $1.55 million for the life I took. 
Um, a million of that was insurance, and then the rest I had to cover. Um, and and it, and so that was taken care of before I went to prison. But the rest of my assets, I just were for my kids' upkeep, right? I mean, I wasn't going to be able to pay uh, alimony or child support from prison. So so uh, uh, I found out six months in, you know, after our, we went through the process of my prison sentence that I would be coming out just like everybody else from prison with uh, $233 gate money plus whatever else I could save. Uh, all the rest of my assets were basically uh, my settlement. And I was happy to do it for my kids. My, my kids didn't do anything wrong. Why should yeah. they have to, to pay for that, uh, that penalty? But, you know, my family didn't meet me at the gate when I got out. I mean, I was divorced. Um, uh, even though I got to tell you, uh, I had a good friend of mine who, who met me. I told you I lived overseas for quite a while. Um, he had lived in Korea as well, and we, we had become good friends there. He met me at the gate. And, uh, you know, you go have a nice breakfast, and you buy some new clothes and stuff like that. And I, he asked me, what's the first thing you want to do now that you're home? I said, there's only one thing we have to do. We have to go to a Korean sauna. And he, he looked at me in surprise, but he knew what I meant. And you probably don't, but uh, a Korean sauna, you have, first of all, you get naked, uh, unisex, right? The men are on one side, women on the other. You get naked, you, sh you shower off, then you go through three different pools from cold to medium to hot in, in different levels you go to. But the reason I wanted to go there wasn't to, to get a shower or a massage. They then do what's called a body scrub. And they put on these really, these mittens that are really coarse. And they scrub you from head to toe, take like all those extra layers of skin off. The first thing I wanted to do when I got out of prison was to take off as much of fucking prison as I right. could. <laughs> take off those outer two layers of skin, head to toe. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I did that on the first day I got out. But, um, um, did you have yeah. to go to a halfway house or? Oh, my gosh. Um, now, you went to the federal system, right? Yeah. So I went to the state system and, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that there's one federal system that's nationwide and then there's 50 different state systems, which are called prison, you know, you go to prison, but there's also jails, which is the local prison in the city or the county that you belong to, right? So there's really three different types of prison that you can go to uh, in, in, in the, you know, in America. Yeah, I was in the state system. Unlike your federal system, which has a halfway house to kind of transition you before you get out, in state prison, you stay in until your sentence is served, and then you get out. Um, now, mm -hmm. I had to return to the county of residence, not the county I did my crime in, so that's San Francisco. So I had an obligation to report to my parole officer. I had uh, two years of parole uh, when I got out of prison. Uh, and there's a lot of conditions of parole that you have that are stricter than the laws that you have to meet when you get out of a, a state prison sentence. So I had two years of parole, um, government custody in a way, right, or government oversight. Um, and uh, the, the parole officer said, well, where are you going to stay? And I told him I was still looking into it. And he told me that if I uh, didn't have a place, if I went, if I didn't find a place within two weeks, I would have to go into a halfway house. Now, halfway house is different than you went to, because in California, to get in halfway house, you have to be. Uh, an addict, basically. So the halfway house I would have gone to would have been six months of 36 hours a week. Um, 
classes and training you you're like in prison you, yeah. you have to be back by eight o'clock you can't leave the facilities without a permission slip um you can't look for a job you can't do anything and that was that was a, a bed that i could stay in now i was lucky uh because i knew what to expect when i got out um not when i went in i had no clue but when i got out i had been the managing editor of the san quentin news newspaper um right. and we have a uh, a circulation of 35,000 throughout the state system. It's a big newspaper and we write a lot of articles. So I had talked to a lot of people with expect. And they told me the dumbest, worst thing I could do would be to go to one of those um, halfway, our state halfway house, which is different than your federal one, because it's usually tied to some sort of uh, addiction or other thing that they want you to be treated for. And I was told, whatever you do, avoid that because you're still in prison. You have like four roommates some of who are active addicts who are going to want to steal from you, for example, but you can't protect yourself because you'll be in violation of your parole. Um, you know, if, if you try to do anything to protect yourself from somebody attacking you, um, so you just got to take them because you don't want to do that. So I, um, I hustled to find a place. I was very lucky that I was uh, an active church member uh, before I went to prison. I've been a, a deacon and a Sunday school teacher and, and my church was able to help, we find um, what's called an in-law unit, which you may not be familiar with, but in San Francisco, you have a little, this was attached to a woman's garage. So yeah. it's a little single, you know, bathroom and a, and a little like living room. That's it. Right. No, no kitchen. None of that stuff. A mother-in-law's unit or like a, you know, they call exactly. it mother-in-law's unit. Mother yeah. unit. Yeah. And so this, this woman who I now consider, she should be, I'm not Catholic, but she should be a saint. Right. <laughs> she did for me. She deserves sainthood, as far as I'm concerned. Because when I got out, uh, with $450 in my pocket, because I had saved up some money from my job and, and the gate money, um, uh, she let me stay in her in-law unit, uh, rent-free. Uh, I stayed there for five months until I could, you know, earn enough money to get my own apartment. Um, so, uh, so, see, I was lucky that way. So. Uh, Let's do. Can we go back to prison? When you went to prison, like what's what's the first, like what is your first day in prison like? Like, I mean, how are you? <laughs> like, you walk through the gates, the doors close. Like, I'm, I'm sure in your mind, you know, is this like, like in the federal system, they have like they have well, they have supermaxes, but then you have penitentiaries, you have mediums, you have lows, and you have a camp. Uh, they have what levels like right a one two three four something like that in yeah california has levels but you know you always start out in jail right, right. you don't go to you don't go to prison um so i spent about two months um in uh in jail now mixed with again, I, I was an educated man i knew this was going to happen so um i i asked around of how to deal with this and I was sophisticated enough to find um, a woman who, a former warden of a California state prison who was running a nonprofit. I made a substantial donation to her nonprofit and had her guide me through the process. So a process that takes most people six months to a year took me less than two months um, to get to the prison of my choice. and. It's a level two prison called San Quentin. So I chose that because it was closest to my home. That was all that I cared about. I, want, 
remember, I was still married at the time. I wanted my kids to be able to visit me uh, in prison. I didn't want them to have to drive halfway across the state. There are level ones in San Quentin prisons, but uh, I went to a level two. My crime was considered a violent crime because I killed someone. Right. And so you're, you're, the minimum standard is usually level two uh, when you commit a violent crime. Um, but so, I was lucky to go through that process quickly and go to, go to that. County was, was a hellhole. You know, yeah. you have, you got guys who are in prison for, uh, who, who can't get bail and are in prison for years. I was one guy who had a murder, you know, uh, on a murder case. He'd been there for six years in the county jail. We had triple tiered bunks and we had mats on the floor for other guys because it was so full. Um, a lot of people would come in and, you know, they're, they're still high when they get there, but three days later, uh, they're in a whole world of hurt uh, as they're waiting there and going through that process. So, yeah, jail was, was a difficult time. Um, but, uh, you know, the hardcore stuff was going to prison. So in California, you go to what's called classification after you finish your jail term and you go to prison. So that's where they put everybody together, level one through level four. So I was in classification for six weeks, uh, pretty much. And while I was there, you know, my the guy next to me had a broken jaw from a fight. I saw guys get hit with what are called block guns. Block guns shoot out like a, a beanbag, but it's got like a shotgun propellant behind it. So it knocks your ass down. It doesn't right. kill you. Uh, but it knocks you down. I saw guys get stabbed. Um, I in, in my block, which is called an X block because there's four different wings to it. One guy got killed, uh, you know, during the time I was there. We were on lockdown the whole time. You know, it was, it was very rare that I got out of my cell where I had one celly and we were in there when I was in classification. It was it was not a fun time. Uh, uh, and I, uh, again, because I had spent enough time in different environments, I was able to kind of navigate those waters, I think, better than a lot of guys in my situation. But something you didn't have, California is very, it's a very racist system. You know, I think you had mentioned one of the times that one of your cellies was like a Mexican or Latin or something right. like that. I, would, I never had that in prison. My prison were uh, uh, bunkies, right, in the same pair of bunks, or my cellies, who were in the same cell, had to be white. Uh, right under kind of an unwritten law so uh, when i first got to uh, prison it was um it was in january it's a place called wasco and it was uh, super bowl weekend and they were going to let us out to watch the super bowl and i didn't realize that i was uh i almost sat i i saw an empty bench and so i was going to go sit on the bench but it was the black section of the open area <laughs> and i'm a white man so i was gently told that i wasn't allowed to sit there and that i to go sit with the white guys but you know i did a couple dumb things like that but but i learned my lesson pretty quick to abide by the rules in prison um and uh to make myself useful not as an atm machine you know a lot of guys who have money in prison they act like an atm machine they get a lot of money and they're giving out gifts to everybody and that's the way they stay safe uh that wasn't a game for me um but i made myself useful help people write letters or you know, talk about what their court documents were, stuff like that. Yeah, I did the same thing. It was the same. Uh, then I ended up getting a uh, teaching GED. Taught the real estate class for 10 years. There you go. You become an important person. 
Um, and you, how, when did you start uh, becoming the editor or the, was it the editor or assistant? Yeah. Editor? Like yeah, how I was that... a managing editor. Um, so I had a different, um, California is about 5% African-American, uh, but the prison population is about 40% African-American. Um, so the prison has a, a much more African-American vibe in California than you would think given the population in the state. Um, and I figured these guys need to be the, the editor in chief. You don't need a white guy doing that. So my job was to make sure all the articles were edited and they were on a range of different themes and stuff like that. The managing editor. So I managed the newspaper. That was kind of my service philosophy. You know, when I got to prison, I kind of went through a three-step process. You know, the first thing I wanted to do was self-realization. I need to understand how I could commit my crime. Who was I that I could do that? And why did I do that? And then after self-realization, you need to get into self-expression. And self-expression is your ability to, to communicate with your community. Now, some guys do it with art. Uh, you know, some guys do it with music. Mine was writing, right? I like to do a lot of writing to do that. And then the next day is you become service, you know, because you want to help others on that journey of self-realization and self-expression. And my concept of service, uh, as well as tutoring uh, guys in math and other stuff, um, was to be the managing editor of the San Quentin News. Because San Quentin, San Quentin's a unique prison. Uh, I think it's, it's just like the Silicon Valley uh, prison system. Um, they have tons. Uh, COVID has changed everything. But before COVID, we had about 180 different organizations or nonprofits that had active meetings and events inside San Quentin. You know, most prisons just seem to have AA or NA. And that's it, right? Maybe Al-Anon. You know, that's it. Our prison had a ton of different offerings for people to, to try to learn about you know, why they committed their crime and what they could do to make sure they didn't do it again. And so a lot of our articles are about what can be done in prison to prepare yourself for when you get out, prepare yourself for reentry. Uh, think of like nonviolent communication, right? So, so you can be able to express yourself without having to get violent with people. Um, understanding your emotions. You know, a lot of times people think they're angry and they're not, they're just frustrated. Right. Right. We'll help them understand that. How do you become a better citizen? How do you become a better father? How do you become a better husband? Uh, how do you deal with your, your addiction? How do you get ready for getting a job? You know, there's a lot of nonprofit organizations like that in San Quentin. And I took a bunch of those classes too. So I got to figure out what the fuck was going on with me. I mean, I was so dumb that I was drinking and driving and I killed someone. I wanted to make sure that wouldn't happen again um, as my first goal, right? Uh, so I did a lot of time of that that work of introspection, you know, who am I? What am I? The way I characterize it is I am, um, you know, everything is narrative. That's how we understand things. And so the narrative that I created for myself was uh, I, you build this psychic delusion house that you live in as a, as a person. And that psychic delusion house is made up of all your beliefs and your philosophies and the way you look at the world. And I had burned down my psychic delusion house with my crime. I wasn't this great, smart, good citizen lawyer. I was a murderer, right? I had taken a life. And so I, I spent a lot of my time in prison rebuilding my psychic delusion house as an adult instead of the one I had built up over my life. Um, uh, 
that existed before that had led to me thinking I could drink and drive uh, or not caring that I was putting others at risk is probably a better way of characterizing it. I didn't want to have to be in that process again. Now, a lot of people like to dance to the 12 step, you know, so they think that AA is the only solution. I'm not an AA guy per se. Um, I think AA keeps you focused on your addiction. Uh, and I think NA keeps you focused on your addiction. My goal wasn't to guard against my addiction. I wanted to change who I was so my addiction no longer had power over me. Um, so like after I got out, I worked in a high-end restaurant with a celebrity chef, um, Chris Costino. He's uh, he's one top chef, top chef master, a very famous guy. Uh, I knew a lot of guys in the restaurant industry who were good friends. I said, hey, you gotta, you got to get a job. They had two bars. I didn't have a problem. I don't have a problem with drinking. I've been out three years. I'm not worried about it um, because I, I can go to a bar and not worry about drinking. And I'm afraid a lot of guys in AA still still worry about their addiction. That wasn't my thing. I kind of rebuilt my psychic delusion house in a different way. I didn't follow the, the design that AA gives you to rebuild your habits and your beliefs so that you can survive. So once you, okay, well, once you got out, you got, I mean, what, what's, what's with all the different jobs? <laughs> I didn't expect that. I got to tell you, I, um, so think about the startup community that everybody knows about and has heard about, right? And I'm working in that area with a bunch of different companies, uh, doing a lot of different work, uh, as an attorney, but also more as a businessman, helping them do, figure out their businesses. So I went to prison with, uh, after living in the Bay Area for, at that time, 15 years, I had a lot of friends. You know, I had a, a big network business-wise and social-wise, but my network is that kind of um, educated, elite, atheist uh, business worker, right? That kind of high mindset. They don't know how to forgive somebody for right. committing a, a sin or wrong. So when I got out, Nobody wanted to talk to me, not, not maliciously. They didn't know how to interact with me. Right. I was something beyond their comprehension. Um, and I would say that that's still true of that. Uh, I'll give you an example. Even the ones who could interact with me uh, looked at me as kind of a disabled person. Right. Um, they didn't want me to be a lawyer again. Uh, I got a friend of mine, Angel, has me house sit for her and and cat sit, you know, pays me to house sit and cat sit for her. So she trusts me in her house, is my point, right? right. Absolutely trust me. But she doesn't invite me to her birthday party. Right. I'm a, I'm a disabled person, or like a mentally disabled, is, right. is the way that my old network still sees me. So when I got out, I had to figure out how to make money uh, to get my own place. Because the most important thing for me is not to be a burden to my family or to society. Right. So I got out and I started hustling. I, um, I did, I've done a couple jobs as a lawyer. Uh, I helped, a, I mediated a divorce between a couple and, you know, made some money that way. I, I worked on the first step act, which is you part of the federal system, you know, is a, a big legal change in the federal system, trying to reduce prison populations and get people out, uh, passed, uh, during the Trump years. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked on developing a manual for the first step back. I've worked with an organization called prison professors to develop like four different, um, 
remote learning classes that you can give people like a manual and they can go through the lessons and correspond and send back in their answers. I help them do that. And it's kind of an author and an editor and a contributor. Um, so yeah, I've done a bunch of, of stuff like that. But I got to tell you, even those jobs only pay like 30 to 50 bucks an hour. I think the right. best one I got was 50 bucks an hour. Most of them are like 30 bucks an hour. So, but, um, so you, you still have a law degree. You're still a, a member of the California. Oh Bar my God, hilarious. You're going to love this. No, I'm not. If you <laughs> commit a felony, right? they disbar you. Now, they charge you for the privilege of disbarring you. But they don't disbar you when you're in prison. They wait till you get out. And then you're, you're supposed to have a six-year time uh, of like cooling off before you can apply for the bar again. Mm. So not only am I disbarred, I can't be a lawyer, but I got a $6,000 debt on top of that for the privilege of being disbarred. And remember, I got out with no money. I can't pay 6000 bucks back. Right. I don't have it. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm disbarred. I can't practice law uh, as a lawyer. You know, I can provide consulting services uh, to a level. But, can uh, you can you go to another state and be a lawyer? Yourself? Only if I take the bar in that state and only if they allow former felons to get it. Usually you have to get an exemption to their standards. So you'd have to go to court to get permission to become a lawyer. Uh, and that's it. Hey, I'm 60 years old. I'm not going to waste my time on on that stuff. But, you know, I'm, I assume you've learned this as well. There are so many restrictions yeah. on felons to yeah. get jobs, to get a license. You can't get an insurance license. You can't get a real estate license in San Francisco unless you get an exception, an exemption, excuse me, to the standard. Because the standard says, no, you can't get one if you're convicted of a felony. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really challenging process once you come back. And for me, that's meant that I've done a lot of stuff, um, you know, whatever I can get, uh, to be honest. Yeah, um, I understand. Uh, Actually, I do. It, it's people ask me, like, what do I do for a living? I mean, I, I, I don't really, you know, I always joke. I'm like, well, I don't really have a job. But, <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, how are you, you know, paying your, how do you pay your bills? I'm like, well, you know, I, I paint. I do YouTube. I get paid to do, you know, to do talks. I get t paid to do, you know, like it, 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 no one thing pays my bills. It's a little here. It's a little there. It's a little, and in the, at the end of the month, it's enough to pay all my bills. Like it's not like, I'm not, there haven't been really any months where I've been like, I don't have it. Like I've been lucky. I, I have it, but I, I don't ever have it to the point where it's like, I can get my credit cards paid off. I could pay off my car. Like I, it always just seems to be, I'm like, Oh, I'm doing really well. Oh, Oh, I'm doing really well. Oh, it just keeps happening. It's like, ah, oh. every time I get ahead, suddenly my $950 car insurance is due. It's like, what? What? That came out of nowhere, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an issue. I just, and, and the, um, you know, I have in the federal system, when you get out, you know, you typically go to a halfway house. Then you have, I, I have, every crime is different. I have five years of supervised release, hmm. which is that, you know, it's not parole. It's, it's like probation. You have a probationary period because of my crime. I have a five year. Most of them are two to three years. Mine's five. So I have a five year, you know, um, super, um, term of a supervised release and I have all these restrictions. So 
I'm not allowed to do this. You can't work in development. You can't work in real estate. You can't work in finance. You can't work in construction. You can't work. It's like, I mean, by the time you're done, it's like, so McDonald's, they're like, yes, but not, but not at the, as a cash register or a, as a cashier, like you have to work in the back, you know, with the fries. It's like, she's, you know, I feel like I can do more than that, but, uh, so I started doing stuff, you know, I'm, I'm selling my books and I sell paintings and I do YouTube and I do talks. And so, yeah, I, I hear, so I hear you, you know, I get it. I get it. And what's even worse is that I got a guy, I got, I have like a probation officer who's watching me. Oh yeah. So if suddenly I went to work for a finance company, I'd be an issue. She would very quickly come in and say, what are you doing? You can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, trust me, that first two years I got out of, you know, you pee in a cup, right? Yeah. I mean, they're not just, they're not just talking to you. They're, 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 they're inspecting where you live. They come oh, yeah. into your home, you know, and I'm a proud man. So for example, in the state system, you can't travel more than 50 miles uh, from your county of residence without permission. Um, I'm too proud to ask permission. I hate asking. I, I, I won't. I won't do it. I didn't do it. I said, oh, "Fine, I'll just stay in fucking San Francisco until the two years are up. Um, then I'll travel without having to ask permission because I just couldn't do it." I travel um, almost every month. Wow. And I have to ask almost every month. I have to fill out a form, send it in. Then I don't hear from her for three days. Then I have to send another text. Hey, I'm supposed to be leaving. I need permission. Then, oh, I'm sorry. I missed this. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, and I've been denied before. Imagine being asking to go to Atlanta and being told no. What do you mean? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't like, do this it. is for work. Well, the answer is no. It's like, well. And for me, it was a double bind because my, um, I mentioned my kids were young when I went to prison. Uh, they were teenagers by the time I got out. Um, so I've been in prison half their lives. Uh, but I worked to make sure my kids did well, even though I was in prison. So for example, uh, my son, you know, we had to take my kid, my son had been going to a private school. We had to take him out and put him in public school. Uh, my kids were living in bunk beds uh, because and half the house because the other half was being rented out to Airbnb to help pay the bills, right? By the time I'd gone to prison. So, you know, right. it makes stuff life difficult. Um, but I looked at my poor son and he had a mother, a grandmother, a sister, and even the cat was female, right? And then his class was 23 girls and four boys. Um, so when I was in prison, I, I wrote to the two private schools that were boys schools in San Francisco. One of them were conscious interest enough to write back and I worked it out so my son could get an interview. So he spent a couple of years at a private school, uh, cathedral school for boys in San Francisco. And then he got accepted at a boarding school. So both my kids, when I got out, my kids were living in Connecticut uh, at school. You know, they come home for the summer, but I didn't get to see them a lot um, when I got out. And I couldn't go to their school uh, because I was on, you know, I, I, I wasn't allowed to travel. So I didn't even get to see him there. This past year was the first time like I got to go to my kid's school and, and see see my son play baseball as a senior in high school on the varsity baseball team uh, to watch my daughter play golf uh, as a as a sophomore um, uh, to go to my son's graduation to meet their friends. First time ever uh, was this you know this past fall, um, and that meant a lot to me. All right.
meant a lot meant a lot in May to go to his graduation and be able to celebrate him graduating high school. Um, but I hadn't been able to do that uh, uh, prior to that. Um, so what are you doing? I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, it's like you don't. Have, I'm guessing you don't have kids because I haven't heard you mention them. But I, you know, I have one son. Uh, he doesn't talk to me. Well, period. You've just hit upon it. Um, my son. The, so before I went to prison, that that year before I went to prison, when I was able to move around, I like took him to every Giants game I could. Right, the baseball games. So we could have some fun and spend some time together. Um, and we bonded over baseball. In fact, we still bond over baseball. This past summer, we went to like six Giants games, um, our, our favorite time together. But my daughter, um, when I went to prison, I was still her daddy that she loved more than anybody. But by the time I got out, I was a criminal mm -hmm. that killed somebody. And so she's been much more distant uh, than my son has. It's been much more of a challenge to get back into her life um, and, and to find ways that she values it. Uh, she didn't talk to me for a while after I got back or didn't have any desire to see me, even though my son was open to it. But, you know, you can find ways to deal with that. I, I actually wrote a letter to Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a very famous celebrity, right? He runs a museum and he's on TV shows all the time. He does Star Talk as a podcast, and, and you know, he's, um, and uh, he wrote back, and one of my letters that I wrote to him, he published in his book. But the best thing was when the book came out for publishing, he said, "Hey Wayne, we kept in touch because I'd ask him for help on how to deal with my kids and how to keep them involved in in the sciences and stuff like that." And so we started up a correspondence, and he put my letter in his book, and he says, "Hey, I'm doing a book show at Davies Symphony Hall, which has." Um, 1500 people, you know, for a book signing, why don't you bring your, your kids? And so my daughter, my son was away at school. I brought my daughter and he invited her up on stage and she got to talk with him for four minutes. So I, I was able to do something that showed that it isn't just mom that has value. Dad yeah. has given something to your life, right. whether it's getting my son into a different school or having my daughter meet a celebrity in the green room before the show and then actually being invited on stage to talk with him during the show. So I've done stuff like that to try to add value. And of course, they know a lot of the work I do in the nonprofit sector uh, to try to help uh, reform the criminal justice system. So these guys, first of all, if they are ready when they get out to give them an opportunity, but also to help them rehabilitate when they're in prison so they can have an opportunity. Right. Uh, what, I'm on the board of a nonprofit that teaches fatherhood values to guys inside. It's called Man to Man. And uh, they'll be in three prisons before the end of uh, this next fiscal year, so then you know, almost a year in the future, uh, because that these guys don't know how to be fathers. You know, they don't know uh, nonviolent communication. They don't know. How, they get frustrated or angry, and they they lash out. Let's teach them how to communicate nonviolently, both with the mother and with their children. Let's help them develop a, a connection with their children, so they don't become ostracized. Because I know exactly what you mean, my son. Um, there was 18 months he wouldn't visit me in prison because when he transferred from to that boys' school, um, he had a really hard time, and I caused that hard time because the other kids knew their parents knew, and they told their kids that I was in prison, and uh, you know he didn't know how to process that. 
Yeah. Yeah, th those are real challenges for the kids. So I, I hear you. Um, I hear you. Yeah. Uh, those good, those good Christian values that upper that uh, upper middle class America has always seems to be selective. You know, they never never seem to jump from the you know to be a good person, do the right thing. They never seem to jump to the forgiveness portion of the, of Christianity. It's it's always used to elevate them in such a way above everyone else. And if you make a mistake, then discard them. Oh my gosh. And, and, and that includes the nonprofit world, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you know, I got one website I, I worked for for about nine months and they, they brought me in as a, a web manager. So help them with their content and post their content. And then they asked me to become a web developer to help them redesign their website. I'm getting paid 30 bucks an hour right, um, to do that work. So I said, okay, well, I got to learn some new skills to do this web development. Like, oh no, do that on your own time. You know, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> no, no. I'm all, uh, if you want me to learn how to do it, I want to get paid. And, and they didn't want to do that. Um, and then, you know, they brought in summer interns. They said, okay, well, we don't need you to work 18 hours, just work five hours. And they said, well, we don't need you at all, actually. So, you know, thank you for your service. And they just terminated. They didn't even give me two weeks notice. They just said, hey, you know, we're done with you. Because they still look at you as like they're doing a favor for you mm. by hiring you. They don't look at you as a regular employee that deserves common courtesy of giving two weeks notice when you terminate a contract. No. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen that. And that that's frustrating. Um, but that, that's the way the world really is. Not yeah. all this virtue signaling you see on TV about how everybody's helping everybody, these no. kumbaya moments. It's, no. It's a lot more challenging than that. It, you know what always amazed me when I was locked up was that like the black guys who have who have you know four kids from you know three different you know baby mamas and you know and, and have just been have never paid child support, have just been nothing but abusive and been locked up for domestic violence and all these other things. In that community, those women will grab their kids, drag them down to visitation, will send them money and put money on their books. Will and it's like, like my buddies that I made millions of dollars for don't want to yeah. talk to you. Don't want. I can't. You want me to come and see you in the prison? Are you serious? Like they don't want to take your phone call. God forbid if you asked them to actually send you a hundred bucks. Like that's don't even ask that. It's like. I made you on the last deal we did, you made $150,000. And then when you get out of prison, they don't want to help you at all. No. It, it, it was, it blows my mind. I knew guys that were guys who were getting out of prison, going to the halfway house and guys are dropping off money for them. And it's like, but I had nobody to help me. Nobody. Yeah. I had written a book. I had written a book and I had gotten a, um, an advance on the book. And I'd and I'd option the film or the life rights to one of my one of my uh, subjects that I wrote a story on. And they happened as soon as I got to the halfway house, they just happened to reoption it. Mm. So I got I happened to get a check like in the perfect. It was a perfect moment. I got a check and I was able to go buy a shitty car and pay for 300 bucks worth of clothes at Walmart. And then I had a buddy who hired me to work at his gym. Like I, it, it was just 
just look. And I had a friend who was a saint who said, as soon as you get out of the halfway house, you can come live in my spare room. Like I lived in her spare room with her husband and her two kids. Wow. And I slept in the spare room and I was so, I was thankful. I had nowhere to go, nowhere to go. And, and you get it. They are a saint because they're yeah. that rare. Cause they're that rare. Yeah. Um, because I everybody think, else was saying, no, no, I'm sorry. I just can't. I, I, they can't be bothered. Right. Is the way it is. Right. They're just, they're, they're busy with their own life and where they go. Um, yeah. I, uh, I think the heart, the thing I'm most proud of is how well my kids have turned out more than what I've done. Um, but they're, they're smart, they're educated, they're happy, they got a good life. They don't use what happened to me as an excuse. Yeah, as a crutch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's important for me. Um, uh, the best way, uh, uh, the closest thing I've been able to do to get into my daughter's life is I cat sit for her. So she's got a cat called Milky Way. She likes the space stuff, so the cat's called right. Milky Way. And so she's away at school now, and so I'm cat sitting her cat, you know. So that's one way I've been able to add value for her. And um, I'm able to stay in touch with her because she uses a platform called Snapchat all the time. Yeah. And so I send her a Snapchat of her cat every day. Um, and uh, that that's shown. The real issue for her is she. This isn't conscious. This is just the defense mechanism she's developed because she was so hurt by my disappearance. Uh, that she thinks she can't trust men now because I abandoned her yeah. in her mind. I got her that. young child's mind, right? I abandoned her. And so I do everything I can to both promise to do something and then make sure I actually do it so that she can learn. She can see by example that she can trust me. She may not feel she can trust me yet, but I think if I stack up enough of these these actions where I show her she can trust me, she'll come to the realization that she can trust me. Um, but that's a slow process and it hasn't been easy and it's not over. Um, uh, she just told me uh, that I have to ask her permission to interact with her school now. Um, uh, even though I've been to her school because her brother and her went to the same school a number of times, but that was because it was both of their school. But now I need her permission. And um, believe it or not, I'm happy to give her that because I want her to take ownership of her life. But I'm not I'm not happy she asked me to. Yeah, I, I thought we were beyond that. Um, but I might not be able to go to parents weekend because she's not sure if she wants me there. So mm. so it's not over. But but uh, I that's my main. I can't help my victim any more than I have right. or her family any more than I have. They. Uh, they don't want to talk to me, and I, that's fine. And I, I did go through a, um, a process called victim offender education and, and a victim panel and uh, because one of the sons of my victim had, had written in, um, a note to me on Facebook. And by law, I can't communicate with them. But I did go through the process of offering to communicate with them and, and uh, had a, 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 a violence counselor interact as our intermediary and they said, no, we don't really want to interact at all. And of course, the civil settlement was the best I could do then for my victim's family. But my family is a different story. Right. I want to interact with them uh, as much as I can. I want to be a true father uh, to my kids as best I can. Uh, and I do that. Um, I do that today. I do it every day. 
and I'll cat sit uh, or anything else I have to do um, to to show my daughter that she can trust me. So what's what's the uh, the game plan from here on out? You know, just in work and and just life in general. Is there a goal or just continuing to work with the nonprofits or? No, uh, it's funny you say that. It, um, You know, you've heard the term conscious and unconscious and conscious and, you know, subconscious, right? right? There's stuff that happens that we don't recognize is happening. Our conscious mind can't see it, can't think right. about it. Um, I can say that I was kind of in a stuck in a pattern of what am I going to do? Um, but my uh, my ex-wife uh, just got remarried in July. So, you know, just just a month ago. And I think that's helped me get unstuck. Um, and not, uh, I'm happy she got remarried. I, I want her to be happy. I'm not happy she divorced me. Right. Um, I would have preferred a love story that transcended my crime to be an example for our kids, but she didn't. So we don't have that. Uh, but I want her to be happy and I'm glad she's found somebody that she wants to spend the rest of her life with. Um, uh, for me, uh, that life is, is savoring my freedom. Um, and part of that could be solitude. I don't know about you, but when I was in, I lived in a dorm with 200 other men, you know, I had to listen to rap music for six years for heaven's sakes. Um, and guys who thought they were rap stars, they had to sing. I yeah. felt like I was, you know, Simon Cowell, that I wanted to come out on American Idol and tell them to shut up, that they, they really needed another profession. But, you know, so I appreciate solitude. I got a great apartment uh, in San Francisco. I, I work hard, uh, but I got my passport. And I think my dream right now is I want to come. Uh, my goal is to become what's called a digital nomad. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm looking at like doing I'm, like trading apartments with somebody who's in who uh, right now I'm talking to Paris, uh, uh, London, uh, Paris, Covington, and uh, and Rome, right? Where people want to spend a month in San Francisco and I could spend a month in their place. So I'm hoping to be able to do that. Um, is that a, is there a website or something? Yeah. Is that like a web? There's yeah. A, yeah. Seems Home cool. exchange. It's cool. Right. But yeah. And it's not going to affect you because you're working basically remotely anyway. A lot of the stuff I do, yeah. A lot of stuff I use no more. So I'm, I'm looking at doing that as a way of kind of doing what I want to do. Um, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, you mentioned that you've written books. I, I, I admire you. Uh, the main thing I've gotten to is writing articles. Some of them long, uh, you know, 10,000 words and a lot of them short. I, I post them on a platform called Medium. And Medium allows me to, you know, I've got over 70 pieces on there about kind of my journey. Um, you know, and, and my recovery uh, to become a better person than I was that allowed me to commit my crime at the time and to make sure I wouldn't do something like that again uh, is an important story for me. And I share it that way. Uh, it's kind of my creative writing way. And, um, you know, that's been a, uh, a good mechanism for me. Yeah, I make a little money on that as well because it's behind a paywall, right? So you get paid. For people right. to read your stuff. 
But um, so I'll continue to do stuff like that. But no, I haven't found uh, my home yet. You know, in the nonprofit world, I'm a I'm a white straight male. Um, nobody wants to hire a white straight male anymore. Uh, I'm not complaining about it. I'm just being honest, right? Right. If if I claimed I was transitioning, I'd get a job. How's that? Yeah. Um, Might be uh, worth it. But I'm not going to do that. Play that game. Um, I am what I am, and if they yeah. don't, if you know if they feel they need more diversity, I get it. Um, I'm not going to tell them otherwise. Uh, how often do you uh, write now? Or oh, all the time. I'm right. writing a piece right now. The reason I knew how many jobs I worked before is I'm writing a piece called 26 Jobs," and I'm writing about the challenges of of you know finding work once you get out of prison and how that's systemic. It's not just me. It's not just you. Um, I think your average earnings decrease by like 40% if you've been convicted by a felony over your lifetime. Um, it's systemic. Mm. Uh, and so helping people to know about that is, is part of the message. I just wrote one on compassionate release in the federal system um, because people don't understand just how twisted and broken the system is, how, uh, let's call it institutional racism, because a lot of the poor people are black and so they're the ones that are impacted the most, but it's institutional in, in that the system is set up to make it impossible for you to say goodbye to your family um, if you have a terminal illness. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, I published that last month. So yeah, I write stuff all the time. Um, uh, have you thought about, um, well, I was gonna say, I, I know a guy, uh, Walt Pavlo. I don't know if you know who Walt is. Um, anyway, he, he writes for, uh, for Forbes magazine and uh, he's he was incarcerated I think he did like two or three years he was involved in um, uh, MCI mm -hmm. and uh, I think he did, I did he did a few years and he got out and he he of course does prison consulting and he he does the he taught at MBA pro not taught but he does speeches at MBA programs and and now he one of the things he does is he writes for Forbes um, I don't you know so, or for Forbes.com, you've written a couple articles on me. Um, it, it's, you know, so I, I don't know if that might be another avenue uh, for you, but. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm doing, I've done writing for a number of publications. Uh, um, so there's one thing you do in the gig economy out here. It's called Upwork. So Upwork, they post these jobs online and you can bid on them. Right? Yeah, I've used I've, it. Have you? Yeah. I've, I've written reviews one of my jobs was to write a bunch of reviews for dog vitamins okay <laughs> i've used upwork to write stuff um so yeah you know that there's there's stuff out there that that you know you can make a little money on um yeah i uh, hire um i've hired a, a editor uh one time for one of my books i wrote um you know all the books i wrote were on uh, other were on other inmates gotcha so, you know true they were all non-fiction and uh I've stayed away from that. My best friend in prison, I, he called me this morning, um, is a guy who pretended to be a Rockefeller for 20 years and got away with it. He got I mean, married and had a child as a Rockefeller. You know, his wife, his wife was a partner at a firm called Bain Consulting, which is one of the premier consulting firms in the world. You know, she's making over a million a year at Bain. I think, right? I, think I saw a doctor. She didn't know. Oh yeah, he's been on TV. They've got books about him. They've written books about him. He's been movies about him, all kinds of shit. 
Um, guy's hilarious. Uh, he, he's actually German. Yeah. Came over here as a child, grew up in Wisconsin, went to California, and then adopted this Rockefeller persona permanently when he went back east to like Massachusetts. Isn't the there Boston a lot of body associated with that crime with him? There's oh my God. No, he was his first. The way they found him was he was getting a divorce from his wife and he kidnapped his daughter. Yeah. Um, I'm telling you. So I, they, yeah. I yeah. So like this, like there's somebody uh, involved in this whole thing disappeared. My best friend. Well, what had happened was they found out that 20 years before this, yeah, that there was a couple that he had been living in their pool house right. and they disappeared and then he disappeared and showed up back east as a Rockefeller. So they just, you know, they ended up convicting him of those murders. Right. Um, uh, and so he's in prison as a lifer, it's called. And a lifer is kind of a weird term. Um, California has three times as many life lifer prisoners than Texas. Okay. So it's, it's a big issue. So these are guys who are sentenced to a set sentence and then they are, they have a, an indeterminate life sentence it's called. So they could be sentenced to 20 years to life, which means they have to serve 20 years. But after that, if they can be found suitable by the parole board, they're able to get out and be on parole. Um, but almost nobody gets found suitable. Uh, I knew one guy who, who had been in for 20 years for a murder was found suitable by the parole board. The governor at that time revoked his parole, so he didn't give it to him. He ended up spending 38 years in prison, even though he'd already been found suitable at 20 years. Uh, so guys spend a lot of time in prison. And so anytime those guys want to stay in touch, I help them out as much as I can. I call it the lifer discount. And I tell them, call me anytime if they need a subscription to a magazine, if they need some money on their books to get something they want to buy, I'll do it for them. Because I knew I was going to get out of prison. Right. Um, they don't. They literally could be there until they die. Um, and and that's what's interesting. I, about, I don't think that's justice. Let's put what's that interesting about murders is that it's the lowest recidivism. They have the lowest recidivism rate. You know, like, I mean, these guys, you get out, there's almost there's almost no chance they're ever going to do anything again. That's right. You know, so if you're if the if your goal is keeping society safe, you know, letting them out isn't the option. You know, or, or I'm sorry, isn't the issue like there there's there's almost no chance at all they'll ever do anything again. So, well, we want to keep society safe, but you're really not like that's a bad argument. Oh, you know? not only are you not keeping them safe in California, it costs one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year to keep somebody incarcerated. Right. So you're By the, way, the federal system is like thirty five to forty thousand. It's a right. lot cheaper in the federal system. In California, it's one hundred and thirty thousand. So not only are you keeping them out of society, which costs them something, let's say, or maybe, you know, it doesn't really keep society safer. It's costing you $130,000 a year to do it. Right. Um, I mean, it's insane. Um, and that's a California issue, right? Every state's different, but that's how much it is in California. We've got over 100,000 guys in prison in California. It's a big number. Mm. Um. Okay, so, I mean, do you have anything else you want to talk about discuss um i i think the main thing is just that you know give people some hope that you know whatever trauma they experienced whatever went through that had them develop these defense mechanisms and habits that got them into prison um that they can dismantle those habits and defense mechanisms if they want to it's not easy it takes time and it takes work, 
but they don't have to stay a violent criminal. They don't have to stay an addict. Um, uh, they don't have to say a, you know, someone who, who adopts other people's personas and becomes a fraud in different ways. They can get out of that if they want to. I'm not saying it's easy, uh, but you can do it. Right. Um, and that there's a, a clear path to doing that if you're willing to try. Uh, the main thing is read the San Quentin news. You, you know, we got it online. I'm still the web manager for those guys. So we get over 10,000 hits a month. You know, people read the newspaper to give people some idea of some of the programs and some of the stories of these guys who successfully um, learn something in their prison sentence. And then when they get out, you know, become what are called returning citizens. Nobody from the San Quentin news has ever gone back to prison, by the way, after they got out. Zero recidivism for the guys who worked on the newspaper. So, hmm. so they're good role models to a community that needs them. Um, uh, so I, I guess that's the main thing. Sanquintnews.com. It's called all one word. Easy to find. And if anybody wants to hear more about these things, that's where I go. Hey, I appreciate you guys checking this out. And if you like the video, do me a favor, hit the like button and hit the bell. So you get notified of, you know, subscribe to the channel, of course. Hit the notification bell so you get notified of videos like this uh, leave a comment for me in the comment section and i will try and respond i respond to a bunch of them and um i really appreciate it and thank you very much and i will see you